The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. And now, over here, it's Brandon. Welcome back to another week on the Brandon Peters Show. And today, it's time to go all the way back to the beginning. Here to discuss, Laura Croft, colon, Tomb Raider, colon, the cradle of life, is the guy who helped launch this show's first episode, Forbes, colon, Scott Mendelson. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. No problem. Thanks for coming back to discuss... uh, Another sequel from the year 2003. Oh, God, you're right. Yeah, you've kind of been on here more than that. You're on the monthly commentary series, though that's out now with Aaron and Abe showing up on our feed. But, you know, people get to hear you frequently if they listen to the commentaries. I don't know if people do or not. And you were part of one of the biggest promo videos. It was where I should have just called it quits on this show because I was a peak. (laughs) Uh, But this is your first return proper, and happy to have you back. And... Also, back for you are like box office reports, like legitimate actual box office reports. I now have a choice to ignore the Nielsen lists if I so choose. I don't have to find a reason to write about why this random film from 2011 is momentarily popular on Netflix if I don't want to. Yeah, it's 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 nice. All hail HBO Max. Yeah, ironically, I I don't think they were being altruistic, but. It did help. I mean, I think, you know, the cushion that HBO Max provided for these films is why they're in theaters right now. Why that Warner Brothers has a pretty conventional, you know, 2021 lineup. And yeah, I think in some cases the the streaming factor is doing some damage to the box office. But I don't know if Warner Brothers AT&T would have felt comfortable releasing these films if it was just theaters or bust. Because we didn't know that, especially in America, obviously, the vaccination rollout was going to be even remotely successful. I mean, it was a gamble. And it does seem to be that this is a one-year thing. You know, after next year, they kind of deal with, I believe, Sin... No, Sin World, yes, which is regal, for at least a 45-day window. So, I, you know, in a skewed way, despite all the hand-wringing, despite all of the what-does-this-mean-for-everything commentary, some of that came from me, I'll admit, it would seem that AT&T was telling the truth when they said this was a one-year-only desperate times call for desperate measures plan. Yeah. And, yeah, like, how long does that symmetry last, do you think? Do you think in the fall it's not going to be as lucrative if you can stay at home and well, watch it? I think if theaters do well this summer, I would not be surprised to see, for example, Dune or The Matrix 4 if they open as scheduled, go out just as just theatrical, Mm -hmm. Uh, just as a, you know, it's, it's, you know, legendary wasn't thrilled about doom and Godzilla in the first place. And I I don't know. I think, I think village roadshow is behind the matrix. Please don't quote me on that without Googling first. I know they weren't happy either. So if they can get away with it and they can justify it again, total speculation, you know, that would be a token of goodwill or an olive branch going forward. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I think as the, na- you know, at least the country opens up, assuming things don't decelerate, I do think you're going to have 
people you know, wanting to get out of the house. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you're looking at those those Nielsen ratings on a weekly basis, and overall the numbers are kind of going down in terms of people that are watching minutes viewed of Netflix, Disney Plus, uh, Hulu, and, and Amazon. Those are the main ones that are being tabulated because when people can go out, they're choosing to go out. And you know, I don't want to be too optimistic about outdoor entertainment, but I was always very concerned or at least for the last year, about the companies that were basically making long-term strategies based on a, you know, a circumstance where if you leave the house, you die. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't mean to be crude about that, but, you know, of course people are binging Netflix. They can't do anything else. Right. Do I think some of that COVID-influenced behavior is going to be somewhat more ingrained? Yes. But I don't think that people who enjoyed going to theaters – before all this, are suddenly going to go, well, I don't want to ever go to a theater again because I got to watch without remorse at home. Right. So I do think there will be some semblance of normality, maybe not this year, hopefully by next year. And great super duper irony, <laughs> if you know by the end of 2022, the world has recovered enough that in comes James Cameron's Avatar 2 to announce that movie theaters are absolutely back to stay. God, that'd be hysterical. Oh, that would be. <laughs> oh, that would, um, that, that would be the way to do it. Uh, oh, yeah. Optimistically speaking, I think, uh, again, assuming nothing gets worse anywhere, you know, and hopefully places like India improve, Canada gets better, et cetera, et cetera. I do think you have a situation where something like Spider-Man, A No Way Home, possibly performs almost as well as it might have under conventional circumstances. I don't necessarily think for sure it's going to be the first billion dollar movies in Star Wars, mm-hmm. but it could be. And I think of what's left, I think that's probably going to be by default the biggest Hollywood movie of this year. It'll have Christmas legs. Mm-hmm. It'll be playing, you know, six, seven months from now as opposed to next week. And yeah, you know, this summer is is not so much about getting theaters grooves back, but survival. Right. Just staying afloat and assuring people that it's okay to go to the theaters. And then at the after the summer, you're gonna get Chang Chi over Labor Day, Malignant, Venom There Will Let There Be Carnage, Dune, No Time to Die, which you know, <laughs> if and when No Time to Die right. actually opens, we'll know that the storm has somewhat passed. Yes. Because that's been sort of a symbolic pandemic era release of our time. Right. Partially because, you know. MGM does not have a giant streaming service to fall back on. So right. they needed, you know, and they, they don't have the overseas box office distribution rights. Universal has that. So they needed domestic box office. It's so not like not they hadn't been offered that, that you know, no, I, no, I, there were numbers going around. Um, that was like, whoa, there were. So, yeah, I am optimistic that we will see some semblance of return to normalcy, either by the end of the summer or closer to the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to make too much out of one overperformance, but Godzilla v. Kong, I would argue, is doing about as well as it would have done had it opened in normal circumstances last year. And in this context, they're um, actually going to get more MonsterVerse yes. films, whereas I think had things been normal, yes. that would have been in question. 
Yes, absolutely. I think mm-hmm. you know it's at like four fifteen now. It's still got Japan in a couple of weeks, which could go either way. Godzilla King of the Monsters stumbled with a three ninety. I think had it opened in November twenty twenty amid a crowded marketplace. I think four fifteen would have been pushing it, frankly. Yeah. And even so, absent the whole look what we did on a COVID curve, I think even four fifteen, four twenty, four thirty would have been. Whew, we dodged that bullet. Not let's make more of these. Yeah, because so I, I think you're right on that. It felt like it was going to be the capper, and now they're like, "Well, we're just getting started, and we're enthusiastically yeah. just getting started." Can you make a Hobbs and Shaw type movie with Godzilla and Kong if neither of them talk? Because that would be my pitch. Do a buddy cop comedy. Send them to space. <laughs> we they haven't had aliens yet, and that's a common thing with all the old Godzilla movies. So it's time to time. Well, they've had. King G- Ghidra, but I meant like the weird alien. Ninety percent of the audience didn't really notice that they were al- he was an alien, right? No, no. I, I would imagine ninety percent of the audience were just like just another monster. Yeah, but yeah, I, I do think yes, you're right. You know, Godzilla and Kong fighting flying saucers has a certain you know core primal appeal. Yeah, they're not um, afraid to get crazy. With those. The yeah, and, no, and it looks like be. Adam Wingard is going to be the Chris McQuarrie of this franchise, whereas they used to. <laughs> yeah, lucky son of a gun. Yeah. But, you know, he made the right choices for that film. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, it's not, you know, Kong's Call Island is still my favorite of the bunch, but mm-hmm. I think, you know, he made a picture that was very newbie friendly, very Jerry, general audience friendly, and didn't get bogged down in stuff that was not of priority to people that just wanted to see the monkey fight the dinosaur. Right. And it felt like those old films put to a modern, yes. like he really seemed to grasp some of the, the the goofiness and feel yes. of those wha- some of the wackier Godzilla things, and I, I'm really happy for him because he's made some good films that nobody went to see. <laughs> like that, yeah, like no, he it, was it, getting constant praise, and then nobody went to see him. Um, Wingard is an interesting scenario where he made he made a number of original pictures that were low mm-hmm. profile, like You're Next and and The Guest. But then when he made IP films, frankly, I was not a fan of Blair Witch, mm-hmm. and I was not a fan of Death Note. Yeah. So when he was hired for this, I mean, you know, I try to go into this with, you know, optimism, but it was like, ooh, his track record with the adaptations is not great. Right. Let's see how this works out. Yeah, he was somebody I was always t- touting for like a, an Elm Street Halloween or a, a Friday the 13th yeah. movie. Like I felt like he had the for that and they kept putting him with others. And I was like, oh, whatever. But this. Well, and and. And he said this in many interviews, and this isn't original scholarship, but he very much applied his 80s fandom to this picture. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, he basically turned King Kong into an 80s burnout, live on a houseboat action hero. Right. And it's funny to watch that, <laughs> but knowing that and watching yeah. it, it's, it's, it's really there. It's hilarious. Yeah. So, so, yeah, fingers crossed. Theaters are back. And then and after October, we can get back to who's the next James Bond. Yeah, good. God, Can't the good wait. news is that by the time it comes out, they could announce it. <laughs> most of the original contenders will have already died. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking about that. So, uh, when, when, yeah, when no time to aged out. Well, now again, when no time to die was first going to come out, it would have you know there's gonna, there was going to be a credit for in memory of Roger Moore. Since then, you could have now in memory of Roger Moore, Sean Connery, Diana Rigg, and you could add uh, Herbert Lom as, as well. Uh, they all passed away since that movie's been delayed. Like five and a half, is it five and a half years? Six years. Six years. Six. Since wait, Spectre. Is that right? 
Yeah, six yeah. Jesus. Six years since that's Goldeneye. I mean, that's well, Goldeneye was six and a half because it was supposed to be this summer. But yeah. still, I mean, it's it's yeah. <laughs> it, 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 uh, it's, that's it's that's crazy. So. Be a lot to talk about when that one finally drops. Yeah, because I, I don't Craig know what happens. No in longer be Bond. Yeah, maybe he'll maybe yeah. he's refreshed. Maybe yeah, he'll I, do I, another I, after it. He's <laughs> like, hey, you guys give me this. in between. I'll do this till I'm dead. You guys keep giving me breaks like this. <laughs> it was like you know, with Hugh Jackman. You know, you give him three years between X Men movies, he'll never stop. Mm-hmm. You know, give him time to make Les Rob and The Prestige and The Fountain and whatever. I, um, I, I just have to wonder that's what, what Stewart always said about Star Trek. Yeah, oh, I have to wonder what kind of like un unrefusable deal Disney's going to offer him for some sort of appearance in something. I don't know. Maybe they'll let the greatest showman out of prison? Because <laughs> <laughs> they basically buried it as soon as they bought, Dis- bought bought Fox. I mean, they were going to be, you know, stage shows and touring events, and Fox, you know, for better or worse, was going to monetize the crap out of that thing. And obviously, we've been in a pandemic for the last right. year, I don't know. But still, you know, that was even... You know, it, it's that that film basically, you know, is now just a, a random pick on the Disney Plus network. So, yeah, I mean, it's if I'm Hugh Jackman, other music, I want Greatest Showman. <laughs> I'm not a remake of the music, man. I'm doing that well on Broadway right now. But yeah, they have to, you know, especially with something that where he doesn't have to do a bunch of stunts. I mean, yeah, he's worth it. He's worth his weight in gold mm-hmm. because there is a fan base that associates the X-Men not so much with the brand, but with the cast of the first three movies. Yeah. You know, Halle Berry as Storm, Patrick Stewart as uh, Xavier, uh, Ian McKellen as Magneto, et cetera, et cetera. And if you can have a way to have your cake and eat it too, you know, and then, you know, I don't know how multiverse they're actually going to be. Obviously, you know, WandaVision was a nice troll move. Good on you for that. I loved when you did it. And, you know, I, they even made him an actor, just like Iron Man 3. That's right. awesome. I love that. I was yeah. very impressed with them doing that. It's it's good. Um, I, they still have it. That's good. Good on you, Feige. Yeah. Good on you. <laughs> so no, I don't know, but I do think just X Men. I mean, I'm sure it'll be fine, mm-hmm. but I do think there is value in that cast again returning as the X Men versus just all new X Men starring today's young actors. Right. Yeah, they they want to act like people don't like those movies, but those were well liked movies, well liked yeah. movies. And they, at the time, they were the best we could ask for for superhero movies. We didn't yes. know that what other things could be done. Like it was, they were the franchise, and then Batman came back. Yeah, it was then, you know, in, yeah. Ter- in terms of you know the the two thousands in superhero cinema, you know from you know I guess Blade to Iron Man, you know it was basically Spider Man. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Way above anything else. Then you got X Men, and then you got Fantastic Four, Superman Returns, Batman Begins, Daredevil, and then you got basically everything else. Yeah, yeah, that's even a lower down where you know you're thrilled to get to 250. It's going to be very interesting to see what the industry looks like when a things get back to normal, and b a lot of these franchises like Mission Impossible, like James Bond, either come to an end or they go through a major transition. And I don't know what the answer to that is. Right. Keep being weird, DC. Yeah, dear God, please, yes. Keep being weird. Cut Ray Fisher a giant check so he can move on and do other work. Right. (laughs) I'm not unsympathetic, but I also selfishly want to see even more movies. If you think you know Tomb Raider, think again. 
Are you truly prepared for what you're about to learn? Joel Siegel calls it the rare summer sequel that's more fun than the first. Hello, boys. Roger Ebert gives it thumbs up. It's nothing short of incredible. People magazine says Angelina Jolie is even sexier than in the first. And USA Today says Tomb Raider has one of the most jaw-dropping stunts this summer. People actually fly. Tomb Raider. Rated PG-13. Now playing. Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life, which is directed by Jan de Bont, written by Dean Georgeris, on a story by Stephen E. De, uh, Stephen E. D'Souza and James V. Hurt, starring Angelina Jolie, Gerard Butler, Sierra Hines, Chris Berry, Noah Taylor, Jaman Hansu, Till Schweiger, and Simon Yam. In this one, adventurer Laura Croft goes on a quest to save the mythical Pandora's box before an evil scientist finds it and recruits a former Marine turned mercenary to assist her. All right, this one I picked, but it's a it's a classic Mendelssohn tale here. As we've mentioned before, the Tomb Raider trap comes from this specific movie. Uh, the Tomb Raider trap is basically when a superior sequel comes out, but because the first one was so blah, it fails at the box office and kind of dampens things out. So, Scott... 2003 did you go see this in the theater when it came i did not i was i was guilty as charged i thought the raider was abysmal it was hacked it was clearly hacked to bits in the editing room it barely had a coherent story it seemed pretzeled in a way merely to justify john voight showing up Mm -hmm. as laura's father which obviously that's angelina julie's father in real life most of the action scenes are basically her shooting at cgi creations which if you have human characters that are fun, you know, the mummy returns was two months, you know, a month earlier and did and was a lot better, but it was well marketed. It was a relatively new property. So it wasn't like you were going after nostalgia. It was probably the most expensive or one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive live action video game movie of that of ever made at that point. And it was an unusually canny example of actor plus character as a franchise package. You had Angelina Jolie, who won, it just won an Oscar a couple of years ago for A Girl Interrupted, and was cert- even if she wasn't quite a butts-in-the-seat star yet, she certainly was somebody that everybody knew. Mm-hmm. And the idea of, if I may be blunt, a relatively attractive young woman like Angelina Jolie playing a famously attractive video game character who also was you know, a professional ass-kicker, which was part of Jolie's screen persona, Again, it was it was a perfect fit. Yeah, nobody in the same way that you know, <laughs> like that, no, yeah, so I mean, everybody was like, oh, and yeah, that it was, was what it was. It was Jack Nicholson and Joker perfect. Yeah, and it was sold as that. And it opened with forty seven million dollars back when that was not one of the biggest openings of all time, but it was pretty darn good, especially for a non sequel. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, forty seven million a year earlier, X Men had broken the record for a non sequel opening with fifty four million. I don't know if Tomb Raider was second, but it certainly was up there. And that's a um, team versus no, one person. Right. Yeah, exactly. But the movie was terrible, I think. I mean, you know, whatever. And it was it was a classic example of what I call the quick kill blockbuster, mm-hmm. which is where a well-hyped and anticipated movie opens very well because people want to see it, but they don't like it. So it sinks like a stone, but it opens so well that even a rapid-fire descent is enough to make it look like a hit. The classic example of this was Batman Returns, 
I love Batman Returns. A lot of people listening to this probably do. Mm -hmm. But if you're young enough, you're old enough to remember, that film broke the opening weekend record with $47 million back in 1992, but then dropped a then huge 49%. Mm-hmm. was out of the top 10 in six weeks and finished up with 162 million domestic, partially because audiences either weren't crazy about it or it made their children cry because it was a very, it was a much darker, more macabre, more intense, more graphically violent movie with a lot of sexual innuendo. It was a film that earned as PG-13, even if by default, a lot of parents probably thought, hey, it's a Batman movie. It's okay for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, relatively speaking, it was not. <laughs> um, so that came out in 92 you know uh, you had other examples of what I would call quick little blockbusters of the first Mission Impossible which again I like but was very confusing to a lot of audiences because you actually had to pay attention right. um, I, that was I a... sound strict I apologize I'm still bitter about that no me too because um, I, I remember leaving the theater I was like uh, people confused I was like wait it made sense like what are you what was yeah, uh, yeah. people were very tripped up by the visual exposition where Tom Cruise is explaining what happened to his fellow agents. And he's saying that Kittredge is the killer, but we're seeing in his mind that uh, John Voight's character is the killer because he's talking to John Voight and doesn't want to give away his hand. Yeah. Again, it's visual exposition. But anyway, uh, and that was a film that opened with a then record $75 million in, in six days, accounting Tuesday previews. Mm-hmm but then flamed out with 181 domestic still a huge hit on a 65 million dollar budget you did like 450 worldwide so it's still a massive hit but again that was an example of a film that opened so high that it didn't even matter if anyone liked it or not right yeah and that was what basically you know and and by 2001 with tomb raider that kind of performance was part of the course yeah you were almost betting on that as that summer or slightly earlier if you count hannibal 2001 started to see a huge upswing in massive opening weekends. Mm-hmm. We could debate why that was. I'm assuming it's something to do with, you know, demographics. You had a generation that came of age that was old enough to drive to a theater and buy their own tickets. You had a nationwide multiplex industry that had basically finished all the remodeling and the stadium seating and the digital sound, yada, yada, yada. But you started seeing films that were anticipated but you'd think not breathlessly so like the mummy returns rush hour planet of the apes you know flirting with you know 70 million dollar openings and then you know by the end harry potter and the sorcerer's stone would break the opening weekend record with 90 million dollars and then it was off to the races tomb raider flamed out 47 million does 131 domestic and i think about 275 worldwide on a 130 million dollar budget it's still a hit so we get another one, mm-hmm. but two years later, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life, you have A, people didn't like the first one. B, people were really only kind of curious the first time around. Yeah. And since the first one didn't knock their socks off, they didn't necess- they weren't necessarily making a lifelong commitment. So unfortunately, summer 2003, The Cradle of Life, which I think is a far superior picture, you know, it's a, it's basically, it starts as a remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark and sort of segues into a, you know, a Roger Moore, James Bond picture mm-hmm. before ending as Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, which is such a perfect finale for that kind of movie that Last Crusade gets ripped off quite a bit and, and you know, National Treasure, Dora the Explorer, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know, it follows that structure where the hero is forced by the bad guys to go through the trials to get the treasure in order to save loved ones. 
you know, it opened with about $23 million. You know, it ended with about $65 million domestic, $156 million worldwide on a $95 million budget. So it was a cheaper film. I apologize. I was mistaken. The first Tomb Raider cost $115, mm -hmm. not $130. I apologize. This one was cheaper, I would say, probably because they had a lot less CGI because it was more practical stunt right. work, practical action scenes, you know, fisticuffs. Mm -hmm. Stuntmen falling off cliffs to their death, which is always cool. And yeah, it was a flop. And the franchise, as we know it, we did not get a third one. Well, they were going. They and wanted. They actually the wanted to. They wanted to make a third one, but Jolie, really? Jolie didn't want to come back. She was happy. She thought that they hit what she wanted to with this film, and just wasn't interested in returning. And that kind of halted everything for a third one. There was because this one. Well, it's got a smaller budget, but it's also an international production. There's a lot of companies attached to the money for this one. So they, it wasn't like the studio was just like, here you go. It was like, a, we have to scrounge up money from all these companies to do it. And they had done it again for a third one, thinking that people would yeah. find out that this was better. And Jolie, right, I think it was around the time the movie premiered, publicly said she wasn't coming back and was this was the one she wanted and was done. And that kind of just stopped everything. Huh. And yeah, she's doing more, you know, slightly more, you know, she had done a, a mighty heart in, mm -hmm. in between those oh, yeah. two, I think. Was that before or after? I apologize. That was after. I know mighty that was heart a Daniel was, Pearl picture. Uh, mighty Heart was a couple years he, after. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that uh, was 2007. I'm sorry, because I yeah. watched that you know, with my first kid. No, um, <laughs> but uh, the, another thing with that um, summer, why people wouldn't have gone to Tomb Raider, they were getting that kind of action in Pirates of the Caribbean, which blew up summer. Two that was the yes. movie of summer 2003. Oh, yeah. So why go in to a weird way, Tomb Raider when you got pirates? In a weird way, Pirates of the Caribbean breaking out the way it did. And I've always felt that that was one of the defining franchises of new Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Harry Potter, Spider-Man, Shrek, and Pirates. In terms of you know these big blustery, you know effects-driven fantasy, you're the special action adventure franchises, mm -hmm. and the, the way that that film just either clobbered the competition or you know held its own against, say, The Matrix Reloaded. There were a lot of practical action films that summer, summer 2003, yeah. Tomb Raider, uh, Bad Boys 2, right. Hollywood Homicide. Obviously, there's a lot of special effects in Tomb Raider 3, but that's there are also a lot of you know car chases and fisticuffs and shootouts and things of that nature. Same thing with the matrix reloaded. Mm -hmm. Yes. There's a lot of CGI, but there's a lot of stuff that that's real. Right. Or at least is intended to look real. Yes. So in a weird way, that was to me anyway, and especially in retrospect, summer 2003 was sort of the end, you know, sort of the finale of Hollywood relying on these practical action pictures, even at the A-level blockbuster level. Because the next summer, you've got Shrek 2, iRobot, Spider-Man 2. And then by 2005, you've got Batman Begins, Fantastic Four, War of the Worlds, Return of the Sith, and so on and so well, forth. You get also, and then you get it, more and more fantastical. Was it 05 uh, Sahara, which people rejected? It's the kind of movie yes. they all nowadays early want early, this early Indiana years. Jones adventure practical effects. And I skipped Sahara. You told me... Maybe we'll talk about it in the show sometime. You were like, "Hey, you should Nobody check out Cesare." And I watched. I was like, "Holy crap, that was really fun!" Like that's the, the, those why we go yeah. to the movies type blockbusters, yeah. and nobody cared. No, and um, that, that could be have been fair. A it cost one hundred and thirty million, which is a ridiculous budget for that kind of film, right? Uh, especially in that environment. But no, it. it I still am a fan of Sarah. I mm -hmm. think it's it's very good. But yeah, I, I think in retrospect. You know, 2003 was sort of a curtain call for, quote unquote, real world or real world plus 
pure know, action. Like Terminator, yeah. action adventure pictures being the A-level blockbuster. And you started to see more fantasy films taking the lead. And this was even before comic book films became a huge thing. Because mm-hmm. honestly, they didn't until 2008, 2000, you know, right. even, you know, 2012, 2013. And comic book movies really didn't start dominating way above everything else until really the, you know, 2015 to 2018. I don't want to say, you know, the Trump era, but that's basically what it was. It wasn't until, like, post-Avengers. Um, I mean, because Thor and Captain yeah. America came out, and I was like, well, they did fine. They didn't take the world by storm. Yeah. It was the Iron Man or Batman. Um, and then, then well, the but sequel. Even Iron Man, you know, that summer, that movie made less on about the same budget, give or take, as as Hancock, mm-hmm. a Kung Fu Panda. Obviously, it was much cheaper, but it made less. It made less worldwide than Mamma Mia. Right. That movie made six hundred nine million dollars. It made only five million less overseas than both The Dark Knight in Indiana Jones and The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Insane. Yeah. Um, the classic example of what you know we always talk about of how it matters what movies are successful, but it also matters what is perceived as successful. Right. A big problem is as often when a a female-driven picture like Mamma Mia, like Twilight, you know, becomes a huge hit. It's sort of taken as a fluke, an exception to the rule. Well, when something like Iron Man makes, you know, $585 million, it's like, we should reshape the entire industry around this. Right. Taylor Kitsch is going to happen, damn it. Oh, his new movie made a couple bucks. Yeah. Spoiler, he did not happen. No. But yeah, Tomb Raider came, came, you know, it was not a success. And frankly, I like it more than a lot of people. It's not like it got rave reviews or anything, but I think it is a very good action adventure film mm-hmm. that uses its video game tableau as seasoning. Yeah, yeah. There's stuff that's kind of feels video gameish here and there, but it's not bending over backwards to be a video game movie. No, no, and it really it was something like you know, Assassin's Creed. Yeah, it it takes like the big difference between this and the, I watched both of them for this one. The first one, you can only win off of Jolie's charisma and excellence of the role for so long in that movie, and like the movie starts on a phony beginning of the training sequence with robots and shooting, and blah. This one we actually started on a mission, and I I think Debont is the big difference here because. We get a like travelogue James Bond movie for the body of this. Like you, you yes. like the you can you can see the places you're at. The locales change. They're interesting. He films them better. He's a cinematographer. That's his background. Simon West did the first one, and as we've seen through his career, Con Air's kind of a fluke. Uh, but Con Air's not really a pretty film either. No, that uh, was entirely cast. Fun. Well, fun that's not fair. It was well produced. Fun, fun side note on Simon West, he was the director of the Rick Astley Never Gonna Give You Up video before doing I did Tomb, not know that. Tomb Raider. But DeBont, like, apparently hey, did not like getting awful time on this film. Um, and it sounds like problems people might have today behind closed doors, because you know Marvel and Disney never have any problems. But he said there was a lot of people telling him what specifically things had to be. This character had to be in it. All the, like, Is video this games. Simon West or Yon DeBont? DeBont. He said like there were like video game people making decisions to a point where he just had to throw his hands up in the air with a lot of it. And he said Jolie, while he butted heads with her, he really appreciated her and she was really involved in wanting to make a good film overall and take and was very into taking leadership kind of qualities with it. But he this is this is it for him. This was his like, yeah. end. I mean he and this 
sadly, it's a run of Speed 2, Haunting, and this movie, which none of them big success stories. And before, if people aren't familiar with Jan Dubon, he was a known cinematographer doing Die Hard, Black Rain, Lethal Weapon 3, Cujo, Flatline, like in demand. He also filmed Roar, that batshit crazy Tippy Hedren lion movie where they actually acted with loose lions and Melanie Griffith got her face ripped off and had it have it have it yeah watch roar and you'll just be like oh my gosh these people are crazy but that's the bond and I think he's the different he's he's why this one plus I mean it's a better story too and he wants practical effects stunts it has a story it has a story (laughs) Yeah, but that's and it is a lesser budget, but I think it's only really noticeable in that submarine scene where it comes up from the water and you kind of get way yes. too close and they can't really pull it off. But uh, they, they right from the beginning, having her pull up on the, the jet ski, just looking at the boats, going into a cab. Like the the first one when they go into caverns and places like that, it feels like you're sitting in the audience at like the MGM Hollywood stunt show or something like that. And it's like. Yes. Really kind of fake. This feels more And to be more fair, natural. the one good action sequence, the first one, is the stunt sequence in our house where she's, you know, bungee jumping all around yeah. the house fighting bad guys. You know, watching this, it's a shame we didn't get five Tomb Raider with Jolie movies. You know, that it, she was nominated for a Razzie for this, which is just utterly stupid. It just goes to show, like, oh, a movie with a big star bombed at the box office, so we're going to give them a Razzie because we who cares about the performance? I guess it's bad. To paraphrase uh, uh, Garfunkel and Oates, Jolie will never have sex with you, no matter how many Razzies you give to her. Right. Anyway, yeah, they have a massive crush on Amanda Seyfried. It's very funny. Yeah. Um, she's really- never going to reciprocate. Let it go. Right. But no, it, it, it's, it feels more like what you'd think a Tomb Raider film would be, which is basically mm-hmm. an Indiana Jones type adventure with a dash of James Bond mm-hmm. that happens to be with this IP. Because, I mean, what is the video game if not at least the initial version? I mean, the reboot's another conversation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the original video game was basically Indiana Jones, but it's a woman. Right. And, you know, that's a video game. They don't have to. You know they don't have to be super, uh, you know, deep in that sense. And it was frustrating the first film. Again, to me at least, it felt very pretzeled for the purpose of doing some kind of a weird family reunion between Angelina Jolie and her estranged father. Right. They were like mending fences in the movie, and that's great. It's but on Golden Pond via Tomb Raider. Yes, exactly, <laughs> and. Frankly, and this was before I, I knew who he was, but Daniel Craig is incredibly dull as a love interest in this picture, in the first picture. Oh, yeah. But in the sequel, you've got, you know, Gerard Butler looking incredibly young, by the way. My God. Right. Oh, yeah. Looks, looks like he gets carded in bars in this movie. And he gets to use his natural accent. When right. he gets to use his natural accent, he's a good actor. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a more exciting picture. It's a more intriguing picture. The action scenes are better. The character work is better. The production values are more fluid. As you said, you know, it feels shot on location. It feels like a living, breathing adventure. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't feel like something was made in a computer badly. 
Right, and it, it feels like it's not. I mean, they have that sequence where they jump off the building in those suits, and that's an actual people jumping off in the suits. It's impressive. Yeah. Just really it's, cool, like James Bond stuff that you see in here. They, yeah, that, that's very James Bond. It's like it's an action scene entirely for the purpose of, here's this cool gadget that we can show off. Yeah. And it's us really doing it. And I love you know, the little bit where they're, you know, they're sort of bungee. Ju- I don't know if they're bungee jumping, but they're jumping down and rooting bad guys as they're falling down. Mm-hmm. And the bad guys, or at least the mercenaries, I don't know if they're villains, you know, they're both falling in tandem with them. Mm-hmm. And, and what, again, it's, it's real stuff, it's real action. Yeah. I don't mind CGI. I don't mind special effects, but right. I want to be fooled. I want to be fooled. Right. And the one time they do do lean on that, it works. It's the sequence where they're walking and those monsters come out of the dark and, yes. and get everybody. And it actually, they set stakes. They uh, make it scary and, it, and they pull it off. It, it's the only thing that feels like something like where it's related to the first movie in any way, aside from, you know, being too um, greater than that. It's also but. an example of, you know, the mind returns kind of feeling its thunder by having a very similar sequence a month, a couple months earlier, or a couple years earlier. Right. But you know, go with what works. Yeah, and again, that sequence is very short. It's not the mm-hmm. it's, it does, they don't you know anchor the entire climax around you know computer generated monsters. Yeah, I'm... it's still a personal fight between Hines, Jolie, and eventually Butler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the movie ends with her making a very decisive decision to kill her friend mm-hmm. because her morals are more important than her relationships. And you know, they, they actually did have an alternate ending in case test screening audiences uh, rejected it, where it was more accidental, more explicitly Mm self-defense. But, you know, to test screening audiences' credit, they went with the actual ending where, yeah, he's got a gun, but she plugs him before she even knows he has a gun. Right, right. What and then they have the their MacGuffin is so much better. The Pandora's box, you know, Indy had Ark of the Covenant, Pandora's box. That's a cool thing. People will be like, well, I, all your mumbo jumbo about what this is and what it does is fine, but I know what a Pandora's box is. It's a crazy thing, and that's all you need to know yes. to get there. And I did. I it's did a think, scary box that opens and kills people. And uh, I, I did at the beginning uh, yeah, when he's talking about uh, Ebola, the most deadly virus known to man. I'm like, wait till he gets to 2020. <laughs> well, I love that sequence where he you know, he poisons the the snitch mm-hmm. again. It's a very James Bond villain. Yeah, you know the film does a very good job of balancing. Indiana Jones and James Bond in a way that feels coherent. Yeah. And yeah, obviously, Indiana Jones was sort of a ripoff, don't remake, you know, franchise born of James Bond. But nonetheless, they're not identical, so there does take some skill to blend them accordingly. Right. I think what they did here also is kind of similar to uh, Ryan Johnson's approach to the Last Jedi, where instead of them saying, "What is Tomb Raider in this video game?" They're like what informed Tomb Raider the game? What helped make Tomb yes. Raider what it is? And therefore you get a more natural Tomb Raider feeling thing that's also exciting as a movie. Whereas, you know, like with Brian Johnson, he, uh, JJ went for what Star Wars by looking at Star Wars. Brian Johnson said what Star Wars by looking at what George Lucas was looking at when making it and what informed him and then adding his own little touches of what he liked. And he got, what I consider the best Star Wars film that has been made in my and lifetime. Even but, you know Solo that I, you know I don't love Solo, but I it's like Solo correctly. Yeah, and I think Ron Howard, partially being of that generation, it's one of the few Star Wars films that very much feels as just an ode to you know. Well, Kazan you know, too. The, the, he's the, an old the same guy, serials yeah. that 
you know, inspired Star Wars, including yeah. car culture. Yeah. I mean, there's, um, there's a plenty of Casablanca in Solo that I'm, yeah. I'm noticing. I'm just like, wow, that's and, pull it off. You know, again, I, I think it's fine, but I think it's it's noteworthy the extent that he's able to do that in a film that still often feels like a Wikipedia entry. Yeah, well, um, I don't think any of that comes from. I, I I have a hard time believing Lawrence Kasdan wrote a script that had Darth Maul showing up at the end. Like, oh yeah, yeah, and again, you know, and again, I don't necessarily blame J.J. Abrams for everything that went on with, with Rise of Skywalker. No, I mean maybe it, it is him. I don't know, but you know, not to get into a, that debate again. But even the Abrams films that I don't like are generally well made. Right. In a way that Rise of Skywalker was not. Yeah. Ergo, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. But anyway, Just, we're, right. I'm getting off the subject. Back to the tombs franchise. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, yeah, Gerard Butler here, uh, hungry Gerard Butler. He, this was around the time he was in Dracula 2000. Uh, that was like his notable one. And he was going around telling people he was going to be James Bond in what ended up being Die Another Day, that he wasn't James Bond in that movie. But um, there was. was that that. that would have been interesting. Because I remember that. Instead, Daniel Craig was James Bond. Daniel wrong Craig. Tomb Raider movie. From a, yeah, wrong Tomb Raider, dude. Yeah, it was, yeah. But you mentioned <laughs> Daniel Craig, who is just odd in that movie. American. He's just a non-entity in the film. Yeah. And again, you know, obviously he's an excellent actor. I'm inclined not to blame him, but he's a plank of wood in that film. The point yeah. where they have so little chemistry, where at the end of the film, where he gets you know stabbed and she goes back in time to save him, was like. I didn't know she liked him that much. Right. I guess she feels sorry for him. <laughs> I, I, I don't buy that. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Uh, in th- this one, I mean, there's uh, Jaman Hans who shows up. This is when he was getting started to be plugged into everything, kind of changing changing their scenarios just over and over again. There's, there's a lot of, I think, a lot of good scenes that they take cues from Indiana Jones. The between adventure scenes where they have a lot between Jolie and Butler yes. or Jolie and, and somebody else that really work. They keep her out of her house uh, a bunch, which we saw plenty of in the first film. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this is not a bottle episode. Yeah. I mean, they start with something that has its own opening sequence scenario and it's not a gotcha trick thing. Take her to interesting, but there's that interesting, uh, even just smart fights like the one where she fights i forget his name the leader of the the asian gang when she fights yeah. him with all the statues and then she fights him with a, a, a rifle a beret rifle yeah. doing moves that are like in the british service british service moves and that's a really fun fight and there's nothing i don't even think there's there's anything that fun in the first movie. i don't even think the the high wire thinks that fun in the first movie as that sequence and that just showing how little of a thing is even way better than that first movie. The first Tomb Raider was an unusually bad summer blockbuster. In frankly, a summer with a lot of really bad summer blockbusters. Oh yeah, it was I mean, the I, apes and yeah. Um, I like The Mummy Returns. I love Shrek. But when A Knight's Tale is one of the best big movies of the summer, that's not good. Yeah. You know, I, I would argue that you know even Tim Burton made what I would argue his first genuinely bad movie with Planet of the Apes. Um, yes, I've been down on Tomb Raider, but it's not, you know, it wasn't just, oh, this is disappointing. It felt to me like a perfect example of what, uh uh-oh, this is what blockbusters are going to look like in in the over-reliance on CGI era. Yeah. And then, of course, Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, you know, especially Lord of the Rings came along. I was like, no, no, it's okay. 
things will get better. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that film was, you know, in a skewed way, that film kind of saved my optimism for blockbusters. <laughs> after. And honestly, I think that's one, one reason why Spider-Man was such a big hit the next summer, because after a summer filled of terrible, terrible blockbusters, not only Spider-Man was really good. Yeah. And it was really good in a character-centric way. It told a story. It had, you know, real character development and arcs and action that kind of sort of looked, you know, you could believe your eyes. Again, CGI, not CGI, whatever. It felt like a real movie. It felt like a full meal after a summer filled with what I would argue half-hearted films like Swordfish, Pearl Harbor, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life. Right. I'm sorry, the first Tomb Raider. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Russia or two, which is enjoyable, but there's not much there. There. Well, Spider Man is a weird thing where it, uh, and to, I, I think the second one, the well, Raimi Spider Man at least feels like it's a rare occurrence of feeling like a real movie, feeling like a comic book, and feeling like a pretty loyal to its source material comic book at the same time, and you feel like a Sam Raimi movie. Like I don't yeah. think we see that a lot with Marvel. They're doing their own thing, but it's a it's a different era. And the DC movies kind of have tried. They want that feel of what the Raimi Spider-Mans were doing, but per their whoever's making their film. But that's a, yeah, the Spider-Man is a really weird, rare thing looking back now that we don't get that doesn't quite happen. Like, Ang Lee's Hulk tries that, but to lesser, like, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm more liking the thought of Ang Lee's Hulk and stuff than every time I sit to watch it. I'm like, I like what this is wanting to do and trying to do, but it just doesn't always work for me. But no, I, I think this is a, yeah. this is a, uh, Tomb Raider Career Life's a fun film. Yeah. I, I don't watch it all. Do you go back to it all the time? Ever? Um, like, no, I, I watched it once three years ago. Before, I watched the other two before the new one came out. Yeah. And then I watched it this morning for you know, this podcast. Right. Speaking of the new one, I mean, if that's worth bringing up. Yeah, sure. I liked it. Yeah. I think Alicia Vikander is very good as Laura Croft. Mm-hmm. And I wish to God they had just skipped the origin story and gone straight to the, you know, this week on Laura Croft's adventures. Yeah. Uh, I think they're going to, again, I, you know, will it avoid the Tomb Raider trap? With Tomb Raider yes. Tomb? I don't know. But I certainly think the sequel has the potential to be a much more enjoyable picture because it's not dealing with Laura Croft's origin and her daddy issues. Right, and and um, the, the, the Tomb Raider the the reboot one, they had Walton Goggins, and it felt like they just didn't get anything out of him. Where normally yeah. he'd be the guy, the person we're talking about. Why? Well, oh my gosh, he was so great in Tomb Raider, and it was just kind of pedestrian for a Walton Goggins. Yeah, but he, he's a guy that almost steals G.I. Joe retaliation with one scene. Right. But no, I, I, I did enjoy the, the last Tomb Raider for what it was. And maybe that's, you know, a part of an issue with a lot of franchises where they, they don't get it right until the sequel. But well, they're too they hesitant to hold stuff. everything back. They're like, well, we don't yes. want to get there yet. We want to plan. Make your damn like, movie, whatever yeah, you want. You know, I, I miss writers just going for it and then dealing with what they wrote them into the corner the next time and seeing how they did. That's why I love the damn slasher movies fascinate yes. me because they didn't give a shit. Like, I don't care. I'm not making the next one here. And you get a writer who's like, got a, and the funny thing is, you know, who does that Marvel more yeah. or less, you think, you know, they drop Loki off at an interdimensional portal in the first door. Like, isn't he supposed to be back to the Avengers? Who cares? We'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, you know, it, to, to a certain extent, you know, it, it's, it, you know, Chris Nolan's Batman films do mm-hmm. that. 
know, they scrapped even before Heath Ledger died. They scrapped their plans to have basically Dark Knight and Batman Three be like a glorified two parts. Like, nope, I'm leaving it all on the table. Yeah. We're dealing with Harvey Dent now. He's not going to be his own villain in his own movie because he doesn't need to be. I mean, it's fine. And that's um, why I liked him. I always praise Aquaman. Like that felt like we might yeah. never get to make another Aquaman movie yeah, was, ever. I don't know what they're going to do for the sequel since they, you know, there's like 800 movies in there. Yes. And so every time I watch that, I watched it quite a bit in quarantine because a, it's awesome and b, my kids like it because there were examples of any good taste. Every time I watch that movie, I'm amazed that it's not three hours long, and I'm amazed that it didn't cost a billion dollars because there's so much movie there. There is so much. It is. It's and you get. I like James Wan's direction on movies, and yeah. it's all there. Like it is. It is a lot of movie. Like you can't um, fault Aquaman for not going it's, for it's, it. An acquaintance online referred to it as Costco the movie, and I like that. There you go. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> it's got everything in bulk. Right. Um, but yeah, the the new Tomb Raider was the, the it was mostly guilty of being fine. Like that was yeah. that was the problem. And, and I, in a non event, you know, an event movie driven era, fine is not enough. Yeah, and this movie, Cradle of Life, has has a pop that movie could use. Like that's yes. this movie's Cradle of Life isn't perfect. It's not like a great movie, but it's got a a a sense of fun. It's got a, a like a I, I don't know like a like a kind of a just a charm that's. A little lacking from the we want people to take this seriously type. Yeah, thing. there's a certain you know we have to make it grounded and you know and part of that's the the video game itself. Yeah, which was rebooted as sort of more of a survivalist origin story. Right. But the other thing with with the Cradle of Life and I would say the same thing about you know Rise of the Silver Surfer, which yeah. is that it's not setting up anything. Right. You know, it just gets to be a standalone story. Well, that's you can do those back then. Before. Yeah, do that well, back and I, again, I, I think to a certain extent, I wish they still would. Yeah. Because, they, again, the, the franchises that work, generally speaking, the sequel does do that. Mm-hmm. It's just that nobody shows up because you spent your fir- entire first movie doing building blocks. And, you know, and unfortunately, you know, when you make a better second installment, like Angry Birds 2, like, uh, you know, Tomb Raider, Crit of Life, like. You know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles out of the shadows. Mm-hmm. You know, oh well, you 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 blew your curiosity factor on a movie that was very bad, and now you've lost the audience that didn't like the first one, mm-hmm. and you've lost the audience that was only curious that might have shown up for a second time if the first movie was good. Right. Yeah. No, that's true. Are there um, any examples of pre Cradle of Life Tomb Raider trap movies that you can think of offhand? I would say Adam's Family Values. I am not a big fan of the first Adam's Family. Mm-hmm. And frankly, it didn't get particularly good reviews when it came out. I And I think generally we all agree that Adam's Family Values is a vastly superior picture. So devilishly again, fun. Yeah. You lost the curiosity factor because it's not, oh, wow, it's an Adam's Family movie. That's pretty cool because you had one of those two years ago. And you had the, well, I saw the first one and it wasn't very good, so... If you want to hear more on the Adams family, tune back to the Brandon <laughs> Peters show from last November, where I and Sabrina Graves <laughs> talked over it, and I was very excited when she picked that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Adams family. Um, I, I want to put like not so much the first to the second one. So Friday the Thirteenth, a new beginning, <laughs> really took people down, and then part six was very good. The Jason lives. 
but I think it was too late in that <laughs> one's box Isn't office. Isn't there another like, slasher series we can think of where the fifth one was terrible and then the sixth one was freaking awesome, but nobody showed up because the fifth one was terrible? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're talking about Saw for the record. That's true. That's true. And then remember with Saw, uh, with Saw, they were like, well, I guess for the last one, the seventh one, we're going to hire that fifth one's director again. And then they read the internet and were like, oh, no, no. So that was crazy because they got the guy from the fifth one and they're like, you're going to direct Saw, the final one. And then they realized, oh, people like six. They want. So then the guy who had done six signed to do a paranormal activity sequel. But due to his contract with Saul, they could pull him back anytime. So they pulled him from that paranormal activity sequel, had him do Saw 7, and fired and got rid of the guy they were got. Like, it's a mess to get to that mess of a movie. Yeah, that poor was. God. <laughs> that, that's literally a, you know, your career suffers because you did well. Yeah. And remember, like, for like 10 seconds, we're like, Brian DePalmo is going to direct paranormal activity 2. Oh, was there? That would have been. Oh. I, I maybe it was. I mean, this is this is inter- movie gossip from a decade ago, but I do remember that at one point. I mean, he, he and like, Coppola aren't the legends anymore that we. I mean, in their no. filmmaking today, they, they kind of get to make what they want nowadays, which is really yes. interesting. But on a budget, on a budget, but that's what they wanted to begin with oh. back in the seventies. So they're yeah, in a odd way, got to where they wanted, but not maybe how they foresaw. They would be doing. I would, I, I certainly hope, and I say this with zero criticism. I certainly hope that whenever Coppola and Lucas hang out, that Coppola says, so you're going to make one of those experimental movies now. Yeah. Like, uh, eventually still going to do it. I swear. Totally going to. Yeah. Eventually. <sighs> but yeah, another example of, you know, in mid series, Star Trek. Oh, uh, yeah. Now, Undiscovered Country did not bomb. It did about as well as Star Trek two, three, and uh, one, two, and three, give or t- and eventually Generations. But Star Trek four, the Voyage Home, was the first one to hit hundred million domestic. Right. And Star Trek five, which was not well received, only did about fifty million in the summer of eighty nine. And then Star Trek six, they or they went back and they hired the same guy from Star Trek two. Yeah. Who made what I would argue is my personal favorite Star Trek, mm-hmm. The Undiscovered Country. And again, it was not a flop, but. I would argue it would have been a bigger hit had Final Frontier not been so disappointing. Yeah, and it probably got a bump from being the last one for the original yes. crew. But then Star Trek, um, Star Trek Two didn't do as well as the motion picture. It did a little bit less. A little bit less. Because Star Trek One wasn't terribly well received. I guess right. that, that's certainly an example. It's a good story, but a positive they, they story used, of the two marriage. Yeah. <laughs> well the, the joke is that they reused, you know, Star Trek Two was like what fifteen million dollars? Because they like reused all the sets from Star Trek the motion pictures and footage. Like yeah, they had, they had plenty of footage yeah. of the ships just because floating. The first, you know, Robert Wise motion picture was incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. It was like forty million dollars back in the seventies. Well, that's the funny thing is, they with that one they <laughs> nowadays you'd make you make Star Trek like it's Star Wars, but back then Star Wars was the hit, and they decided to just make straight Star Trek. As a, yeah, as a response, like people were expecting Star Wars, and they got 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah, now I, I think motion picture has aged very well, mm-hmm. partially because it is so different from the other uh, Star Trek films. Right, in a way, very similar to the Saw franchise, actually, where you have the first film that really feels very different from the sequels that would follow. Oh yeah, and then you have the second film, which sets the visual and narrative template for the franchise going forward. Right, and then you have a fifth film that's that's lousy. And then a sixth film that's terrific, and then a seventh film that's it's sort of kind of sort of a finale, but not really. Right. Sort of a handing of the torch for you know installment. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Yeah, generations. Jigsaw, just, they all fight yeah. the Borg. Right. Yeah. They all did. Yes. <laughs> you have a Hoffman going. So spiral. Spiral is insurrection. No Spirals are insurrection. No spoilers. But yes. Where it's like a two-part TV episode and. <laughs> Which means Saw 10 is going to be a piece of absolute garbage, written and directed by somebody who hates the franchise and made to look like a, you know, a Conjuring Universe film because that's what's popular right now. There you go. Oh my, can't wait, can't wait. <laughs> All right. So this is what else is where we talk about anything else we've taken in recently, seen. Maybe a piece we wrote, listen to an album, whatever, uh, anything. What? So, Scott, what else? I saw Jason Tatum's Wrath of Man. Okay. It is fine. Uh, oh, the only thing I will say about it is that for what it's worth, it's the marketing is a lot less spoilery than you'd think. There's stuff that isn't even hinted at in the marketing. It's a more complicated picture than I was expecting in ways both good and bad. It is incredibly violent. It is pretty mean. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not about a dashing action hero that rights wrongs and protects the innocent but it still feels like kind of like why is guy Ritchie doing this movie <laughs> there are there are guy Ritchie bits and pieces here and there but it does feel like you know guy Ritchie signed on for you know what otherwise be a very conventional jason statham action picture for what that's worth and i, I did in anticipation i did rewatch watch king arthur for the first time since theaters oh. the first 20 minutes and the last 20 minutes of that movie are very good the middle hour and change is terrible and I don't know who is to blame, but it's a tragedy. My what else? And since you're here, I wanted to bring this up because I know you keep up with it too. I wanted to talk about the state of affairs for the CW Arrowverse at this time. Like, this has got to all be coming to an end, right? Uh, right yes. now, right now. So, Supergirl's on its final season. Black Lightning ended. I didn't even realize that was. Oh, I had not kept up yeah. with that one too much. People are leaving show like The Flash. I mean, Grant Gustin, I have read multiple times, is wanting to be done. I know the actor who plays Cisco's leaving the show. Tom Cavanaugh's leaving the show for Flash. And it's quality. And I feel like we're going to be yeah. like, I feel like they're going to close everything and we're going to be left with Smallville again. <laughs> like that's, it, it began out of the end of Smallville yeah. and then. Clark and Lois, or Superman and Lois. That's actually really ironic. We're back at Smallville. You should write about that. <laughs> if, uh, if it comes to no, pass. I, I think, I mean, without, you know, behind the scenes stuff notwithstanding, I think they shot themselves in the foot setting up Crisis. An arrow ending on a whimper. Mm-hmm. Because the entire final season was doing building blocks for Crisis and Infinite Earth. And a pilot uh, that never <laughs> isn't going to happen. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Flash was running it, you know, pardon me, pun, running in place for the first third of the half the season, and then it had nothing to do with the second half of the season. Supergirl came off a fantastic fourth season. Right. Was also running in place for a while. And then, and this isn't Crisis's fault because the, from what I'm gathered, the creators, you know, they asked the Supergirl showrunners, well, is there anything you want me to fix? And they said, well, we could bring Lex Luthor back. No. I, I love Jonathan Cryer. It's, it's not remotely his fault. Mm-hmm. Terrible idea. <laughs> Having yeah. him as a villain of the week has sapped that show of all of its urgency. Yeah. One of the best things they did was bring him on for like a handful of episodes. Yeah. Have him be a foil to Lena Luther, an mm-hmm. established character with a history with 
everyone. Give her someone he knew to bounce off of, yeah. and then kill him off at the end of season four. Yeah, in a way that adversely affected the character arcs of the cast of Supergirl. Yeah, and you know, I feel terrible, but I have to force myself to watch those this year. Yeah, no, it feels like uh, like Flash came back and where they they had to pick up from where they left off uh, with the last season, and it felt like they were like, let's hurry up and get the hell out of this. Like it would, and, and it's been stumbling around and it just, I feel like it feels like we're in that post Steve Carell leaving the office period where it's like, you know, and of all the people Steve Mel leaves and it's like, Oh, we thought maybe we could rely on all these people. And for some, not that these shows cross over every episode, but he leaves, we're like here, and it's kind of like that year I watched Smallville and I realized, I think I'm not in the demo anymore here because Clark moved back to Smallville. Well, that's part it, got of what all, I'm it got It got all high school again. The, Flash has these new characters are throwing us. I'm like, I don't, I, don't, I, I guess they're with everybody. Well, I, I agree. You know, at the end of the day, I'm a 41-year-old man and maybe right. it's, yeah, this isn't my anymore and frankly one of my ongoing issues with with pop culture as it exists is that in order to work and thrive in this industry i have to pretend that i care about all these properties that for all intents and purposes i should have grown out of 10 years ago right that's not to say they're not individually good but i shouldn't have to pretend that i'm still excited about another batman movie right you know i shouldn't have to pretend to be excited about the mighty ducks coming back or a lot of the disney plus stuff and to be fair you know there's a lot of people in my field that are noticeably younger than me and that's fine mm-hmm. you know if you're 26 you probably like software because you saw it when you were 15 right and i don't judge you i, I do i will be fascinated to see if just generational nostalgia for saw four allows saw five to be a bigger hit than it otherwise would be but yeah as far as and the other thing is with the, especially with the flash in which the main characters they're adults they're not kids anymore yeah and yet the kind of adventures they're going on, the kind of lessons that they're learning still feel like, you know, what you'd learn when they were barely above Dawson's Creek age. Right, right. You know, Jesse L. Martin, God bless him, doesn't need to be there to give them life lessons anymore. No. Harrison Wells does not need to be there to give to be their mentor anymore. They're our age, frankly. Right. Well, it's funny. I talked. Um, to, I was talking to my, my sister. I'm like, remember when we used to just be in awe of Jesse L. Martin every week. And now it's just kind of like, oh, it's old yeah. Joe. It's old Joe there. He's, 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 he's has no problem. I mean, obviously I'm not going to root against his gainful employment, but he no longer has a reason being there. And it's weirdly, I don't want to say embarrassing because that's too hard of a word, but he, he, he doesn't fit in there anymore. And it's weird watching him go through the motions. Yeah. In a, in a, in a, I think it's telling that in Supergirl and the flash, the two best episodes so far this season were basically flashback time travel episodes involving generally new characters that are much younger than the core cast. Right. And B- Batwoman, that's just uninteresting well, I mean, city to me. Like the- They shot themselves in the foot by not letting the new person just be Kate Kane again. Yeah. And that, that was ridiculously... And idea. then bringing Kate Kane... Yeah. Why did you... <laughs> like, I, I was hoping... I thought Batman, uh, Batwoman would have a huge moment that would say something in culture of you're a role, you can be recast. We have too much reliance on yes. a facial recognition... We need to be more like British stuff where it's like, it's a part. It's not a person. It's a part. Someone else can play Iron Man down the road. People have played Batman. People have played James Bond, Doctor Who, like all this stuff. It's a part. So they don't look exactly alike. 
that's fine. It's a part. Like Roseanne well, they replaced Becky. Oh, no. is, yeah. Yeah. I think that's what Marvel's trying to deal with in setting up these established characters as t- taking over the mantle of the IP. Right. So now Sam Wilson is Captain America. And that's okay because we like Sam Wilson. Right. Or, you know, I'm guessing the Iron Art TV show is going to set the course for what well, needs to be an Iron Man 4 with that new young actress yeah. whose name escapes me. And I, I think that's, you know, it's, it's and that's, that's a solution. Mm-hmm. If it works, it works. But yeah, Batwoman, geez, I don't know what, and you know, I said that when the, the, they made the new, they, they made the announcements, like, bringing a new actress, that's fine, but you're setting this poor woman up to fail. Right. And the show's probably, I mean, ratings-wise, it's a disaster. Yeah. And Legends just came it's, back. It's another, and that. Even they're losing all their, yeah. their people. Yeah. And I adore that show. I do, too. I think last season suffered, crisis-wise, it took Katie Lotz out of their yeah. production too much. And she's really, yeah. she's one of the best things about the entire Arrowverse. Every, everything, she mixes with yeah. people very well. She's a strong character on that show. It, the best movie they had was to bump poor uh, uh, Rory from Doctor Who, I can't think of his name right now, from being the yeah. lead of the show and making it to her. And yeah. Everything has treat you know rippled out from that, and that became like the best show. And then they yeah. took her out of the equation last year, and then she was blind and all this stuff. And but that show has a lot of fun. That's the only one that I have potential that maybe can bounce back because it's so weird and can be different things all the time. So that is the one left that I look I eagerly watch. Yes, that it's not just a matter of obligation slash curiosity mm-hmm. slash well might as well see this to the end because it's almost over anyway right yeah so it's just um really weird but yeah to get back to your original point supergirl's leaving arrow's gone black light i'm guessing when flash ends that will be the end of the arrow versus we know it yeah which I mean, is ironic because i always you know i've joked and or not joked about the flash movie taking so damn long they actually get made but the flash tv show would be over by the time it came out now the entire Arrowverse is going to be over right. by the time the flash movie comes out I think they'll try you know, to eke one more clean, proper season out of Flash where there's no COVID production problem. Got to finish yeah. one season, start another, and they'll call it a day. Because I, I, I've heard Gustin, they've tried to re-up with him, and he's, no. <laughs> uh, they could always bring Wally um, to take you know, over to the, the show, but yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's, I understand that, you know, COVID messed with their finales, but the seasons were lousy before that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's not like it was. Um, sa- it was. It probably saved them. I mean, maybe it deprived them of a clean start, but it's not like Hero Season Two was kicking ass before the writers strike. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, the Weepy Twin Season, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, but whatever. They had a hell of a run. Yeah, it's impressive. Um, as, as impressive what they did on television as what Marvel did in theaters with those. Yes, those programs. I would agree, and I think people also too are getting movie quality things from those heroes on the Disney plus now. And it's changing yes. things. They, I mean, they're still on a TV scale more or less, mm-hmm. but the production value, what you do get is of a feature film caliber of TV size set pieces. If that makes sense. There's, I mean, Falcon winter soldier has some impressive action sequences while still yeah, the having opening a lot of TV crutch. Yeah. The opening aerial action sequence in Winter Soldier was fantastic. That would have been great to but see on a big screen. I don't think it ever. Yeah, yeah I don't think it, they even tried to top that. And no, maybe they don't have to because it's TV. Right. But 
definitely. So uh, Arrowverse, yep. Uh, you just kind of see the end. It just feels like the end is coming, and now I feel like I'm chore watching them. But um, I did. Yeah. Love, it was beloved shows when it was starting, like beloved. Like oh, yeah. I was, and you know, it, it's. But again, I'm conflicted. Is like, is it? Is this? And I'm kind of glad I've heard you say this because you know I, I don't feel like trashing the shows on Twitter just for whatever. But mm-hmm. I mean, am I just too old, or is it just not good lately? Yeah, probably a little of both. Yep, a little both. My my children are still enjoying the Flash. That's the only one they yeah. watch right now. It they were. They did watch Supergirl for a bit, and then they just kind of lost interest, and then it got really good. Poor them. Yeah, season four was fantastic. Season four is one of the best seasons of the Arrowverse. Like it's yes, I would agree with that. It's where it had something to say and wasn't pulling punches. Unlike like Black Lightning would come out trying to say stuff and then pull back a little bit and go back to high school drama. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's kind of why I gave up on that show. I was like. It, like their second season of Black Lightning kicked the door down. I was like, oh, they're going to really get into stuff. And then it became high school drama again. I was like, oh, well, well, we had an episode, yeah. didn't we? <laughs> but Supergirl, that um, season really, I was like, shoot, I couldn't believe how bold they were going. I mean, Supergirl was always pretty bold with the social stuff, but that was it was a, almost so timely. It wasn't fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, okay. Well, hey, that'll do it for today on the show. Scott, thank you for returning and uh, hopefully not creating You're a Terminator trap of guest spots here. Uh, <laughs> so so uh, just let people know where they can keep up with you. Uh, Forbes.com, the ticket booth. Just Google some variation of Forbes, the ticket booth, Scott Mendelson, and I will pop up. All right. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD, written work at YSOBlue.com. There's more from the Brandon Peters Show this week. But until then, always remember to keep the positivity in your online film chatter. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at brandonpetersshow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetersshow.com. show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.
with the all-in-one eWear AV recorder from Panasonic. It captures video, takes pictures, plays MP3s, and more. It's simply perfect for saving the day. See eWear in action this summer in Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life. Panasonic. Ideas for life.